Welcome to Coming Clean, the podcast dedicated to common sense environmental dialogue, environmental optimism, and real environmental solutions. This show is proudly powered by Orsted. Welcome back to Coming Clean, uh, the podcast with your host, Benji Backer. I am so excited to have on the this episode one of my additional favorite people. I just keep having some of my favorite people on these shows, uh, which are also some of the coolest people who are working in the sustainability space, but this time from a totally different perspective than often what we hear from, and that is from the chef cooking world, uh, Andrew Gruel, who has become a fast friend over the last couple of years and somebody I've gotten to know and who spoke at our ACC summit last summer. Uh, but he's a famous chef who's been featured countless times in the Food Network, uh, Cooking Channel, even ESPN. You know, who knows? He's been everywhere. Uh, but he's also famous for posting FOMO. And what I mean by that is food that I'm missing out on. Uh, I know that the acronym doesn't really line up there, but uh, he posts a lot of food that make you jealous that you're not with Andrew in that moment uh, on social media. Uh, and on top of posting great pictures of food that he makes, he's the founder of numerous restaurants that have that food, as well as charities and a lover of the environment as well. Andrew, welcome to the show and thanks for being here. It's an honor to be here, and thank you so much. And if anybody does have that fear of missing out, just swing on by the restaurants, and we'll give you the uh, the Benji discount, hundred percent off. A hundred percent off. I, do I even get the Benji discount? No, because you've got to cover all the people who took the discount, so you got to pay triple. No, <laughs> well, that's that's why I stay far away from your restaurants. Uh, no, I, I would love to be there. Uh, I've never actually had Andrew's food, um, but he's actually agreed to cook for every single person at our next summit. Isn't that right? You got that 100%. And I joke, by the way, you always have the VIP seat here. Well, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have you on because I know this is a topic that's near and dear to your heart and something that you've started to really talk a lot about again. I know you've talked a lot about it in the past as well. And um, it's just really an exciting time to talk about the intersection of food and, and the environment and climate change and, and just sustainability. It's It's been at the core of your work. I would just love for you to give a quick overview of kind of who you are, what you do, uh, but how you've weaved sustainability into it. And then we can get into some of the, the nitty gritty. Well, by trade, I'm just a glorified dishwasher. I love food. I love everything about food. My mission is to get people to eat more of the right types of food, specifically seafood, which is a niche area for me, sustainable seafood, marine conservation, and the way in which we can somewhat vote with our fork. But uh, I've got restaurants mainly now throughout California, uh, moving a couple out of the state. I founded Slapfish, which was a fast, casual, uh, multi-unit seafood restaurant group. Started that as a food truck in 2011, and then I sold it last year. And now we're expanding some of our other concepts and diversifying the portfolio. So I'm a food guy is really what it comes down to. Yeah, and you've and you've really with the with Slapfish, and not to be confused with Snapfish, but Slapfish, you, you've really had a big focus on sustainability there. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you've done to ensure that in the seafood world that, as we know, is, is oftentimes hard to come by when it comes to sustainability? Certainly. And I think all topics and roads when it comes to sustainability leads back to the ocean, in my opinion. So seafood being a huge piece of that, because we're disconnected from this idea of environmentalism based on some general ideas and theories. But I think that when I can bring it back to the food, it's a lot more 
um, it's, it's, you can actualize it, right? It's a lot more relevant to people to understand it as opposed to it just being kind of an a priori concept. So when it comes to seafood, we import over 80% of the seafood that we consume. We export the majority of our seafood by way of the Magnuson-Stevens Act of, I think it was 1976. It is a federal requirement that our fisheries are managed to a maximum sustainable yield. So by that, we from a regulatory perspective, we have the most sustainable fisheries in the world. And once again, we're, we're exporting all of that seafood. We're importing under-regulated seafood. We have no framework for open ocean aquaculture because we feel like it's bad for the environment, yet 65% of the seafood we consume is farmed from overseas. So another level of hypocrisy where we say we don't want to do it in the States because it's not mm. right, but then we import it when it's being done in a very unsustainable manner. So there's so many different nuances to seafood. But at the end of the day, and I'll go higher level, our per capita consumption of seafood in the U.S. is one of the lowest in the world when it comes to developed nations, 16 pounds per person. We consume like 95 pounds of beef chicken per person, which we know actually have in many cases on a commodity level and kind of a factory farm basis. It's worse for the environment. And we don't consume any seafood. And it's my contention that because there's no real option for high quality, sustainable seafood outside of a white tablecloth restaurant and people are confused by seafood. So I've kind of made it my mission to, number one, make it more approachable and fun and not so, you know, mired in science and confusion. And number two, to get people to appreciate and understand more about how the seafood choices they make can lead to a much better environment but more so future right future mm. for not just fishermen but for all of those of us who are directly or indirectly connected to the ocean i, I love that I, I would love for you to expand on the the fault of importing all this seafood and and i i think that you, it's, it's it's a perfect case of nimbyism not in my backyardism of we don't really care where it comes from if we don't have to think about it and even though we've somehow heightened the interest in where our food comes from, it still doesn't seem to have pierced through. Can you talk a little bit about some of the horror stories that you've either firsthand seen or know about from, from what we're doing by importing seafood and then give a contrast of what happens in the United States that isn't like that? Certainly. And that's a great question and a great point in terms of the nimbyism, because that's exactly what it is. When we uh, uh, buy seafood, it, you know, is farmed or caught by another country. It goes through the processor and then up through that kind of supply chain or chain of custody. There's not much transparency in that international chain of custody when it comes to seafood. The majority of the um, gateway security points, if you will, are going to be at our ports of entry or any country's port of entry, where the FDA would then theoretically inspect containers that have seafood well only two percent of the seafood that comes into the united states is inspected it's virtually impossible to inspect any more than that so they take these random samplings and then it's more of a statistical analysis so to get to the horror stories yes in other countries where they farm and catch seafood there are so many practices from the boats where they're using the majority of what they use in a lot of cases is slave labor number two a lot of developed nations will buy out the rights to overfish under developed nations' oceans because every country owns the 200 miles out from their coastline. That's the exclusive economic zone. You can pretty much like lease or rent that out. And then they overfish another country's ocean, which totally decimates any of the artisanal fisheries that were there. 
And then number three, the chemicals they use on the seafood. I mean, we're talking like just dousing it in chlorine, malachite green, mm. chemicals that are horrible. It's laden with antibiotics, um, not just trace. I mean, many times it's like first form antibiotics. And then the other element is that it is treated with carbon monoxide, which is legal. And actually, frankly, that's not that's relatively safe because what they're really doing is, is that they hit it with carbon monoxide to give it a nice red color. But the part that's not safe is, is that the seafood starts to turn and turn brown. Let's take tuna, for example. The hemoglobin goes from red to brown as it ages. And then they hit it with carbon monoxide, and it gives it that beautiful watermelon color red that you think is healthy and safe, but it's really just turned seafood that's mm. treated and, and painted from the inside, if you will. So all of these practices are disgusting at its, you know, kind of a, on the surface level, but incredibly unsustainable through even the the labor supply chain processing supply chain and then ultimately the effect that many of these fishing practices have on the surrounding marine ecosystem but we bring it all in and we that's what we eat but as you say not in my backyard we won't do it the right way so i think a lot of listeners would listen to that and say well i'm never eating seafood again how do you how do you tell or can you tell if your seafood is sustainably sourced at a restaurant or whatever and if not how can we change the way that this is without giving up seafood which you know as we'll talk about as you've alluded to has a lot of benefits how, how, how can we move forward like that well you hit the nail on the head so that's the paradox right and that's why typically i don't talk about those things publicly because i don't want to scare people further away from seafood we think to ourselves well heck then if i hear stuff like that i'm just going to eat chicken i'm going to eat beef Hence the reason people don't eat enough seafood. So kind of my goal and the way that I try and simplify this into, you know, five or 10 second sound bites is buy U.S. seafood, wild or farmed. Farm seafood is not a bad thing. So first and foremost, if it's U.S., wild or caught, wild or farmed, you're good to go. Um, and there's certification labels now that you can start to focus on where they are actually certifying the chain of custody from best aquaculture practices known as BAP. There's a global aquaculture alliance that maintains levels of um, oversight. And then on a wild fishery basis, the Marine Stewardship Council. So there are labels you can look for now. But the easiest and the most important thing that you can do is just ask questions where you buy your seafood, whether it's a restaurant or if it's at a seafood counter. And if they don't know the answers and they're not honest or they're confused, it's probably not a good it's probably not a good sign. Um, mm. it's, it's, it's really that simple. Over 75% of the seafood consumed in California is done so in restaurants. So that's where you got to kind of lean into the restaurant, um, understand and try and find out what restaurants are serving when it comes to seafood. But as mentioned early on here, it's U.S. seafood. I mean, we have the ability to feed like they say every single American citizen healthy protein just with our wild capture fisheries. And if we opened up our oceans to open, you know, well-managed open ocean aquaculture, we could probably feed the world over twice with high quality omega-3 laden protein. So where are we importing this seafood from, for the most part, top few countries? And where are we exporting this to? And a follow-up to que follow-up question to those countries is why are we exporting so much versus using it ourselves? 
they pay a prettier penny in other other countries if their per capita consumption of seafood is much higher then there's a much mm. higher demand for seafood south uh south korea um japan china primarily like the spiny lobster industry here in california they'll pay three times the price for spiny lobster because of the cultural significance and it's um they have a deeper respect for seafood in their diet than we do here in the states uh and we we export it and then we import the cheap stuff um you know that's probably part of the problem with our our food system here the um the the real kind of simple answer is that right there is is that um we just don't have the same level of respect for our seafood so we export it the imports come from china russia you know there was this big thing in the in the ukrainian crisis with russia where they were trying to ban russian imports but all of the seafood was going from Russia through China, relabeling as processed and packaged in China and then being shipped to the United States. It didn't have any effect on Russian seafood. And you think to yourself, Russian seafood, well, they're, you know, they're right up there by Alaska. So they're getting just that same high quality Bering Sea, cold water seafood, caviar, you name it. But then it's getting shipped around the world nine times over, frozen three or four times and treated with chemicals in China where they don't oversee and regulate things um, it's all about the, you know, the Juan or the Benjamins, and then they ship it back to the United States. I'm glad we're importing uh, our seafood from tr- su- such trustworthy countries. It's really uh, just great to hear that. Now that that is that is abysmal, and and I think the fact that people have to ask those questions is frustrating. To you know, when you're going to a restaurant or a grocery store, wherever you get your your seafood, but I I think it's imperative that we start doing that more and more. Um, and as we'll talk about, I think on other with other uh meats and, and all foods i mean it's it's becoming a really big problem uh and before we go into those other kind of foods and some of the other meats and and, and produce uh, that have an impact on the environment what is the role that microplastics play in this and how worried are chefs and and how worried is the cooking industry in the role of microplastics right now. I mean, we all hear about it all the time, but how big of a deal is it? Well, I think we're just scratching the surface, number one. Number two, I don't think that it's actually a topic of concern for chefs and many of us in the industry just because that's really low on the totem pole of concern, right? Right now, it's like financial feasibility, staying alive, being able to, you staying alive financially, being able to serve food at the right price. Um, microplastics get pushed under the rug, pun intended. I think that um, where we have an issue here in the United States is that where you're seeing a lot of the microplastics is in the wild seafood, right? Mm-hmm. Because you can't necessarily control what they're feeding on, and they're kind of feeding down the food chain and, and off the benthic environment in many cases where the microplastics and all the, the toxins are, especially those like inner coastal fish. And when you're farming seafood, you can really control the feeds. You can control what's going into it. You can control the environment. So you're going to see a lot less. You're going to see you probably know microplastics or have an ef- that would have an effect in farm seafood but as mentioned um that would be u.s farmed i imagine in other countries and i know this this is more anecdotal but i know that in a lot of the feed that they use in other countries they'll catch a lot of wild fish to feed for farm fish so it's not a fully efficient process right because if you're pulling from one stock to create with a feed conversion ratio can be inefficient and those anchovies or bait fish that they might grind up to use in the fish feed for um some of their farm fish might have microplastics in it so you can't control that as much here in the u.s we've done a lot with the feed 
study to find that in many cases you actually don't even need to take wild fish to create fish feed to have a high omega um, output on a farmed fish you can start manipulating proteins and just using like as crazy as it sounds they were using feather feed in a lot of um, farmed fish like kona kampachi uh, and it it's just as good um we throw we waste so much food and so much protein in the united states that if you just threw all of that into like fish feed in the in aquaculture you would actually have um a pretty sustainable pretty sustainable industry so those are my general thoughts on the microplastics and the seafood Mm. um i'm sure we'll learn more about it over the in the coming decade so this is probably going to seem backwards to a lot of people that farmed fishing is farm seafood is oftentimes better for the environment than really any other. I mean, I would think of a lot of people would think the opposite. And, and what I'm hearing is that potentially uh, farm seafood is, is maybe at least short term. One of the best answers we have is that, is that right? Yeah. 1000% when done properly, it's great because you control the environment, you control the product and it's just in time when it comes to processing versus wild fishing. When you just go out there and you catch based on a season or what your allowable catch is, and then you don't even have an end user. So you've got to catch it, throw it on the boat, process it, hold it, hold it in freezer storage or however you hold it. That's very energy inefficient, even just from an electricity perspective. And then you've got to figure out who you're distributing it to with farm fish. I can harvest it based on the demand or the purchase. Wow. Yeah, I mean, PETA is not going to like that. But other than that, I think pretty much anyone would get behind that that idea right there. That's pretty, pretty cool. And, and something that I think more people should know. I mean, U.S. farmed seafood, U.S. seafood in general, obviously has a much better environmental impact, but also is a lot safer for your consumption. And um, interestingly enough, that's a trend in a lot of the environmental conversations right now, whether it's energy and getting our energy from the United States, whether it's getting our batteries for electric vehicles or whatever, whatever it is, American sourced uh, products and, and food are, are oftentimes a lot better. And and hopefully we get into that with the next topic that I want to go to, which is kind of the role of veganism and, and other meats. Um, you are, you know, a, an ardent supporter uh, of being pro meat. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of people in this country that have been skeptical of the veganism trend or the or the trend that's been kind of put on us in a lot of ways what is your stance on veganism in general and what role do you think it has going forward i have no problem with veganism plant-based foods and having your diet kind of revolve around that i think that it's um you know i i really don't and i i don't like how people kind of you know, shun people who don't eat meat. The problem I have is when you actually start to replace proteins with highly processed, um, you know, meats or lab-based meats, uh, manipulated proteins that are incredibly high in sodium and saturated fats. And, uh, also I think can genetically change our makeup, um, over the years. Some of what's happening in labs is, is just so, you know, it's all, done under the veil of trade secrets and trademarks and this and that. But I, I just don't think when, when we play God and manipulate foods that it's good for the, the Marine, not the Marine, but the generic kind of biodiversity of the ecosystem or just humanity in general. So, so I'm a huge proponent of eating a lot more diverse vegetables and legumes. I have a concept called butterleaf. That's a celebration of vegetables for meat eaters. I call it. Um, no alternative proteins. It's just like, Hey, you know, let's, let's move some of these side dishes to the center of the plate. 
But once again, I think this idea that meat and um, proteins are leading to climate change and they want to shut down and highly regulate, manipulate those industries. I think that's a huge mistake. And I don't I, I don't firmly believe the intention is good. Yeah, I, what I really like about that is that it's a very balanced approach there, which is that you have no problem with it. And in fact, you know, you, you think people who decide to do that or have like potentially a, a great decision in that it's just that the way that's being done is very damaging in a lot of ways and that people who are being told that it is oftentimes healthier or better are missing a lot of the the, the context and the information there on some of the things that they're consuming obviously there are some really good things for you uh in the vegan world and and that's definitely worth pursuing but uh i think that the the level of processed foods in that space now and where that is coming from and a lot of the information that's been unveiled about where how sketchy it can be uh is is sketchy and you know i i grew up in a family of of vegan vegetarians uh i was really the only person who ate meat in my family and i saw firsthand that it's very very easy to do it in a way that is healthy and and good for your for your body and there's also a way that it's not good and i think that that not good part needs to be put out in the open more which is honestly those those aspects are the ones being pushed uh before we kind of move to the role that meat has right now can you quickly dive into so you I think we can all agree that there are some really good aspects of veganism and, and like just eating fruits and veggies and legumes and all those things. Can you talk a little bit about what some of the problems that you have seen have been from the more lab process side of things and, and what should people be aware of in a general sense that maybe they aren't yet if they haven't seen those, those facts? Well, what's making up the protein composition are these kind of plant proteins and other ingredients that really come from big agriculture, right? And, you know, we've known that big ag is an issue, has issues with their, you know, monoculture, pesticide use, Monsanto, soil erosion, all the water kind of pollution from any of the constant fertilizer runoff. And it's only going to exacerbate those issues to try and create that protein in the form of fake meat. Now, I'm a huge proponent of regenerative agriculture. Uh, I think that there's a way in which we can kind of have open grass-fed meat um, available to more people. We should probably cut down on our portions. We don't need like, a you know, the old 96er at every meal. And our obsession with kind of this, this corn- fed meat is creating an imbalance of omega-6 fatty acids in our diet it's all about right you know we talk about we point it we point to one thing and say look at this cost benefit and you know there's always equal and opposite offsets and culture drives so much of this policy and culture drives this conversation and in many times when culture is driving these conversations we're losing sight of the big picture and the cost benefit analysis and we're typically just focusing on the marketing element or there's secretly somebody behind the scenes trying to make a lot of money off of it um and you know for those of us who have work a ton and have lives and families it's hard to read below the headline but the real takeaway here is that we've got to be careful about putting too many of our uh, theoretical eggs in one basket and creating this kind of monoculture, as I say, where if we're producing so much soy, right, and these commodities, then, and it's in all of our food, if there's an issue or an imbalance in our diets, like we're all screwed, right? And then you have these crazy medical costs that then drive up the insurance costs and then 
those become the biggest issues in America. And then insurance, the insurance debate drives everything. But I talk about the omega-6 to omega-3 ratios and all the issues that come along with that from hypertension, diabetes, obesity, the Western diet. You know, that comes from not just meats and omega-6 fatty acids found in the feed processed and foods. And corn. It's all processed foods. Exactly. Seed oils, right? So anytime I start to see like big ag and big corporations pushing behind one product to take over and be the panacea or the like silver bullet to any of our issues, I never trust it. And that's what we're starting to mm. see now with alternative meats, lab-grown meats, plant-based meats, eat the bugs, those messages that we are joking about on social media all the time um but there's something behind them well i I honestly think what you're saying here is at the crux of really the the whole environmental dialogue which is that there is a lack of balance in the dialogue and you know in the same answer that you said that too much soy would be bad for the human body and for our environment and for everything you also said that having too big of a portion of meat is bad and and i think you or not bad, but it can be harmful too. I mean, there's a balance here that we have to strike in our diets, in our energy consumption, in our anything. And so when people are saying that there's a panacea, that there is a one size fits all answer that we just need fake meats, or we just need all all meat, or we just need oil, or we just need solar, we just need EVs, or we just need to stick to the cars we have now. There are there is oftentimes a malintent in the people who are saying those things uh and there's oftentimes an incredibly not the the outcome of that malintent is actually worse than the malintent itself because it has massive massive implications on society and just like anything in life it's just it's not as easy as saying that we need to do just this or just that and in the in the food conversation i hear that so much that you can't eat red meat or, you know, there's people on the, you know, the far other side of it that say, we need to eat as much red meat as possible. Only red meat, only red meat, only red meat. And I think anyone who's looking at the facts would know that neither one of those sides is true, but those are the sides that get the domination part of the conversation. And I wonder, you know, before kind of we go too far in one direction or the other. How do we start to restore that conversation when it's so difficult to have a balanced one, especially on food, when people get so defensive about it so quickly? Well, you know, food, right? Food is the great unifier. It's a topic that we all know and understand that we approach, you know, just for some people, 10 to 15 times a day when we have meals or snacks or we consider our, you know, what we're putting into our bodies. It's the one thing that we all have in common. And I always say that, that there's little metaphors in all these conversations we have about food, food and this food conversation like politics is way too polarized. And there are, um, you know, there's balance in the middle. And one example that I'll use as well is, you know, we look at Alaskan wild seafood. Everybody celebrates Alaskan seafood. It's the greatest seafood in the world. It's written into the Alaskan Constitution that their wild seafood is going to make up the majority of their economy. It's the backbone of their brand. Well, did you know that 70% of Alaskan seafood starts off in hatcheries? Hmm. They right? And then it's released into the wild. And then they come back for their hatchery runs. It is the perfect combination of farmed and wild. I call it wild raised because the act of starting it in hatcheries, that is farming by its very definition. That is aquaculture. That is farming. That helps refurbish the population as well. 
Yeah, it's stock fortification. Mm-hmm. They did a program here in Southern California in the 70s or 80s with um, white sea bass, commercial white, the commercial fishery for white sea bass. Beautiful fish, delicious fish was way overfished before they started doing the proper um, statistical analysis, which kind of led to that Magnus-Stevenson Act. And um, we uh, now, the fishery, after stock fortification, doing exactly what I just described, it's at its maximum sustainable yield. It's the most incredible success story. And it's a combination of farmed and wild. You go to the seafood counter, it's labeled wild. If you go anywhere and you ask about Alaskan seafood, it's wild. When I post that I, on, that I celebrate farmed salmon on Twitter, I get completely beaten up by everybody, all the commercial fishermen talking about buy Alaskan mm. seafood. And then when I tell them that it starts off in hatcheries, crickets, um, mm. you know, and it's, it doesn't have to be that way. Right. So that's an example where in food, we can see that ba- where, a, where the balance actually will lead to a better outcome. And we don't need to be so mad at each other because from a culinary perspective, I'll, I'll close with this. A Pacific seafood, Alaskan seafood, which is a Pacific salmon versus Atlantic salmon, which is a totally different species, are completely different culinary outcomes. So the same way I would serve a sardine differently than I would serve a mackerel, I would never interchange them. I don't Atlant to me, Atlantic salmon and Pacific salmon are two totally different fish. They just they're part of the salmonoid family. So I use Atlantic one, salmon. One is worse than the other. Pacific salmon tastes a lot better than Atlantic salmon. Just gotta say that. Well, well, so so I actually agree when cooked, but on a from a sushi <laughs> perspective, I want the fattiness of that Atlantic salmon belly, right? Like if I'm eating it raw, you're way too balanced here. I need you to be more Pacific salmon only. I, well, I do love. I mean, I do love <laughs> Pacific salmon, but it's not always available. That's either, right, uh, right. So so, and if I want to give, if I want to get, if I want to be able to offer this highly rich omega three opportunity to somebody 365 days of the year, I'm going to have to serve, I'm going to have to pepper in some Atlantic salmon, right? Yep. Well, and what I love, what I love about that is just like this, this, again, it's, it's returning to this balance conversation of, you know, you're, you're getting attacked by, I'm sure when you post these things that are about the commercial fishermen versus the uh versus the farm you're getting it from both sides uh of that equation because you have this nuanced approach of that we need we need them all to work interchangeably and there's a way to do that there's a path forward and there's a path forward for those who love atlantic salmon and love pacific salmon and that's actually like a real uh funny kind of uh you know relationship that uh, people in the east coast and west coast have but there's there has to be this interchange relationship and that brings me to a really important question that i have which is we have a you know at least right now a growing population in the world and there's a lot of protein that needs to be fed to people uh between lab meats between non-lab meat or sorry between lab fake meats non-lab fake meats uh or or other proteins that aren't meat related as well as seafood and regular meat what do you feel like that balance looks like if you had a crystal ball and you could go into the future how do we feed protein to the entire growing world and and what could that look like at its at its core well, if you want to take proteins across the spectrum, beef, chicken, wild boar, I mean, I'm just naming all the different proteins out there, and seafood, the answer is seafood because it has the least environmental impact when done properly, and it's farmed seafood. Um, now, that could be closed contained, um, closed containment, land-based aquaculture, that could be, but that's not always the most efficient answer because of the energy costs associated with that. You can use the, the, the ocean's current, like Southern California, the current off the Southern California bite is perfect for raising and farming seafood shellfish, which is actually a filter feeder. So it cleans the marine ecosystem. So you're getting a healthy protein. 
but you're simultaneously cleaning, cleaning the marine ecosystem. The reason we don't do all of these things is because there's no regulatory framework in place for us to be able to do that and permit it. And we're so behind on it because of the varying interests, the financial interests. I always joke, I say, when does an environmental, when does a, uh, you know, a developer or, or a contractor become an environmentalist? And it's when they build their house at the beach. Mm. Um, <laughs> you know, so, so the, the, the answer, if you're asking me just kind of in a vacuum, how do we do it? That's exactly how we do it. And I think all aquaculturists, marine biologists, scientists, and food policy experts understand that. But nobody wants to step on the landmines of, of offending the people who are writing the big checks. Um, you know, it's a money thing. And over the years, as the government has effectively merged with kind of corporate America, we've lost focus on um, who's the policeman, you know, who's kind of regulating this and keeping it safe and, and who's who's writing the checks and who's making the money. Right. Yeah, it's a really good point. And we have become in a we're in a place where we don't really know what is true and what's not with what's more sustainable as well i mean we hear that you know electric vehicles like i like we mentioned earlier like panaceas like that that's the panacea the government talks about it and the companies talk about it and then we start learning that mm, there's more to the story than just as simple as electric vehicles equal good just like lab you know lab grown fake meat equals good has a lot more to it than that so i mean we could spend all day talking about that and i and i also would love to talk about the the importance of kind of American, you know, farming and American, uh, you know, meats and all those sorts of things, seafood. Um, but I really do want to get to a couple of other topics before we hit time. And that's largely around the food waste topic, which you've talked a lot about in your time, uh, kind of with national media around the, the food world. And, can you dive a little bit into the role that food waste has on our environmental concerns that we have and why you've even claimed that that's probably the biggest thing that we could fix when it comes to our environmental impact on food rather than trying to pick and choose which foods we eat? Yes, yes. And that is exactly, and I'll, and I'll, I'll double down on that and say that if we just focused on wasting less food, that we actually would probably be 40 to 50% towards all of our collective goals of being a better country or a better world we, you know, having people hungry and dying of malnutrition and not being able to get their next meal is the root of so many evils. And it's the root of so many problems in, in, in the world. Um, and it's not about financial inequality. It's strictly about kind of sustenance. We throw so much away to try and maintain what we think is like a theoretical or, or, or a, um, you know, balance, economic balance, when at the end of the day, um, you know, once again, we're looking at that just with a real narrow focus. Let's use seafood as always, because that's the medium through which I can communicate. We, we generally accept that in the shrimp industry, wild shrimp industry, there's like 50 to 60% of all shrimp caught has the same amount of bycatch, like a one-to-one -one ratio. So for every shrimp, one pound of shrimp I catch, I throw away one pound of bycatch. And it's just totally accepted right? Like, oh, and then every year it's like, we've cut back on the bycatch in the global industry by 3%. And we've, that means we've saved like 10 million fish, but still we're throwing away 5 billion pounds mm. of high quality protein fish, et cetera. That's just one fishery within, you know, one subspecies. And the same can be applied, I think all around to so many different types of foods that we eat. There's just gotta be a better way in which we can kind of create pipelines through which any of this food that would otherwise get wasted gets to people, um, children first and foremost, right? Like through the school systems and not letting government run our food system because look, 
go into the DMV and it's the most inefficient place in the world. Now, just imagine those same people are running our food systems. They're running our taxes. They're running absolutely everything. Those are not the people that you want running your local cafeteria, if you will, or feeding your children. And yet they are. Um, so the whole system is upside down, but the amount of waste is disgusting. Drive behind any grocery store any day of the week and just watch. There will be carts of food lined up, ready to be thrown away all day, every day. I see it every single day. There's so what's, you can do about it. I mean, this could be a whole podcast, a whole book, a whole series of podcasts what what broadly can we look to for solutions on that i mean i think if you listeners listening to this okay now i gotta focus on that a little bit more in my in my advocacy or in my voting or whatever what what can what can be done generally about that that could at least get us in the right direction well i think we personally even in our own homes in our own behaviors can waste a lot less you see it's become generally it's become accepted on a grand scale but it's also become accepted i think on a on a small scale and i'm not calling anybody out but i catch myself doing it i catch my wife doing it like just what we waste you know the things that we order and how we eat and what we don't use that's in our refrigerator food waste right just trimmings you buy fresh organic carrots at the farmers market the first thing you do is cut the tops off and throw the carrot greens away like those are edible those are great those are delicious um, you know, making stocks. I'm not saying everybody has to compost, but I think local cities should be putting compost programs together where all of our food, I mean, it's pretty amazing how the, how they marketed recycling and got everybody to understand and appreciate how to recycle when really that was just an economic play and that none of that gets recycled, <laughs> you know, um, the California, you know, the, the redemption value, the money, all of that stuff. I mean, it was like this, just this big, in environmental industrial complex that was creating jobs and just moving money around. Uh, I think the intention was good and the intention by the consumers is good, but we can do the same thing locally and we can do start in our own homes. That's all we can do is think local because frankly, we're not going to have make no individual is able to make a massive change on a grand scale unless we start small. What I love about that too is it also has application to the rest of the environmental dialogue that it's it's not just about these massive scale changes and that they actually don't change start changing oftentimes at that level. It needs to start from the bottom up and, and in our own personal lives. And that doesn't mean like, oh yeah, if you you know don't eat all your food and you throw it away, you're a horrible person. It's just like yeah. let's try to make these steps in an incremental direction in a positive way. And the world starts to change. I mean, it's a narrative thing. It's a market thing. It's a consumerism thing. We buy a lot of food that we don't need. And so the, the grocery stores stock up and they have, you know, a lot of intermittent demand and you know, there's just ways to be smarter about it. And, and there's ways for uh, local action to happen. I mean, I, I think composting, especially in places where food can decompose or they have the facilities to be able to do it. That needs to be a far more talked about solution to even just climate change with how much uh, emissions go up based on food waste and how much they could go down if we uh, responsibly, you know, decreased uh, the, the, the impact of food waste. So I love that you brought that up. I mean, what's the role of government in that food waste conversation? Deregulating. Uh, there is no role. That's the point. So mm. uh, stop the regulations that are preventing me from putting a garden in my backyard or preventing me from composting with my neighbors or from putting a public garden up at a local school or at a charter school. Just stop overregulating all of this stuff and just allow the community to do what they need to do when it comes to food and creating. The government can create, 
you know, the government doesn't need to subsidize any of this. They don't need to create jobs by establishing, you know, a SAR of local environmental composting. They really just need to step away, allow it to happen, and then educate, right? They can provide the necessary information and allow the consumers to make their own decisions. Educate consumers. You know, there is a public school system. We need to be a lot more aware of the kind of food education in that public school system. Um, they can start allowing local chefs and local home cooks to be involved in the food preparation at schools and understanding the waste and where the waste goes and how they can repurpose and recycle a lot of that stuff. It's, it's, it's fairly simple if you really start small and you start in, in kind of that local um, human ecosystem and then you can cut, copy, and paste and scale it. We grew at the local Huntington Beach High School. We started an ocean-friendly garden with the environmental students over there, the environmental science program, and we grew like a thousand um, organic tilapia in a fully integrated, closed-loop, uh, multi-trophic aquaculture system. And then we bought back all the vegetables that the, the high school was growing in conjunction with that garden. But we couldn't scale it because of the regulations. It made it way too difficult. So I want to get to that in a second. And I think it's really cool that the the high schoolers and, and you were able to team up on that. I, I, I love that some of the stuff is happening across the country. Uh, a couple of years ago, I toured a uh, basically an ex- experiment at the Texas A&M Agriculture uh, Center, which is basically maggots that were eating and larvae that were eating food waste from the uh, dining halls. And they avoided all the emissions because of that. And they also fed those larvae to chickens, which were much higher and rich in protein. So they'd have to feed the chickens as much. And so there's this, you know, and, and those are the sorts of things that we can start doing at a much more local level and not have to, to worry about like changing the whole world all at once. The last question that I have before we actually have to get to the rapid fire questions, uh, because we're d- up on time is you mentioned the, the regulations holding you back in California what has the regulatory structure in California done to prevent sustainable action in the world that you've worked in? And what does, you know, what, what keeps you in California, first of all, but like, what can California and other states that are like that serve as an example for us on when it comes to actually harming the environment with the way that they're operating? We're in the middle of an egg shortage right now. Prop 12 in California basically prevented farmers from raising a certain number of egg-raising chickens because they wanted to give in a couple extra inches, which I agree in principle with creating a more humane space um, for establishing some of this kind of agriculture um, and specifically when it comes to poultry and raising poultry, but now it's created this massive shortage because they didn't think about the consequences. The unintended consequences of regulation, once again, when it's driven by culture um, and isn't thought through is never really good in the long run because now we're just going to, we're going to end up, you know, uh, trading off another protein that perhaps is worse for the environment. I think what California tries to do is they try and hit they try and manage the environment through massive corporations by partnering with them, which is that where I talk about that kind of corporatism, fascism type of approach. And they think that, well, if we control the big guys, then if we Hmm. control the big guys, then we can't, then then we've mastered, you know, all of it, right? Like we're going to have the biggest effect, but in actuality they end up partnering with the big guys and, and it makes it worse. 
Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And it also, there's a lot of small guys out there and together that makes a big impact. And if you're hamstringing them and you're only, you know, aiding the big companies, it creates this imbalance. that's really, really harmful. And, uh, the bigger, the bigger, the bigs get throughout the history of our world, the, the more harmful on average that, uh, society, uh, yes. sees the ramifications of. And, and we're seeing that, you know, not just in California, but in other states and, and nationally and worldwide. And uh, there's there's this real push that you're alluding to that needs to happen, which is localism, which is community oriented, uh, which is, you know, shopping as sustainably as you can by being uh, being locally minded. I mean, there's so many things that are kind of tapping in that same direction. I think it's really imperative that people start to understand that when it comes to sustainability. Yep. So... Yeah. So before I let you go, and I really appreciate this conversation. I mean, I could talk to you for hours about this stuff and uh, I just think it's fascinating and hopefully listeners agree, especially because like you were talking about food is the ultimate unifier. We all eat it. We all have hopefully three ish meals a day and, and, and have these sorts of things crossing our mind all the time. It's a very actionable way to be a part of the solution. I want to ask you a few fun rapid fire questions. Uh, and I'm going to start out with one that I think uh, is, is, is I, I'm, I'm honestly pretty interested in the answer to, which is what is your favorite vegan food? My favorite vegan food um, would probably be, you know, any vegetable fire roasted finished with nutritional yeast. Um, it's really that simple extra virgin olive oil, a high quality vinegar. I mean, that's my, you know, I could eat that 24 seven with some brown rice or like amaranth or quinoa and uh, call it done. Well, I thought I thought you hated veganism. No, it's it's amazing how people think that uh, those who are pro meat, especially in the cooking world, uh, actually love love the diverse set of food that we have out there. So that's awesome to hear. Uh, best city for food in America. Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, you know, probably somewhere in, in middle America, right? Like I, I, um, granted I love, you know, foods in Portland and American regional cuisine all over, but, uh, there's a lot of stuff in the Midwest that you'd be shocked about Wisconsin, um, you know, St. Louis, some of these middle American cities that have a lot of Eastern European culture, you know, European culture that, has been steeped into generations of what they do from a culinary perspective with a lack of real ingredients. But if I had to come down and, you know, now I'm giving, you know, giving homage to some of those lesser known states, but at the end of the day, it's New Jersey. New Jersey's the best food state. Oh boy. I, uh, I won't have any comment on that. I was really excited about you going towards Wisconsin where I grew up and then suddenly you had to go towards New Jersey and uh, <laughs> now, now I just want to cut off the whole thing. All right. Best city for food outside of America. Oh, and I apologize. I, you said city and then I went state, but then I'd have That's to right. um, outside, of, outside of America, uh, Montreal. Wow. I love that. I wouldn't, wouldn't have thought that. I know they've got great food. That, that is, it's an easy access city for a lot of Americans. That's, uh, that's, that's really fun. All right. And then the last question is, uh, probably a fascinating one to get your answer on because you've already talked about what harm it's done, but what is the highest quality fast food chain in America? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, uh, you know, I, I know that most people are going to want to say in and out, um, but I'm going to lean towards Del Taco here in California. Mm. They still grate their cheese fresh. It's, they, they make their meat, you know, in-house. And 
something about their cuisine that while it's salty and much of it is processed, it's still kind of done in a way that I think maintains a bit of the integrity of what the original and founder had in mind. That's awesome. Well, I, I've not had, had Del Taco yet. So, uh, you know, when I'm in the area near you, I'll have to have some of your great cooking maybe after a meal at Del Taco later so that I can start at Del Taco and end with yours. But, uh, I really, (laughs) I really appreciate you spending time talking through these issues with me. I really would love to have you on again to, to talk about some of these other issues, especially around, energy and some of the things that you've had to deal with with the gas stoves and electric stoves as well as some of the uh, deeper dives into the role of different meats in the future there's so many topics to dive into but i'm so grateful for what we dove into today you're such an important voice in this just because you bring such a balanced approach into a world where it's so personable into all of our lives as to what we do with our diets going forward and i truly am excited for the increased role that you will have in this conversation going forward as well so so thank you for being here thank you so much for having me i appreciate it we'll look forward to cooking for you soon awesome i'll be there and before we jump the coming clean podcast is grateful to be powered by orsted a wonderful company strengthening america's energy security with reliable and domestic clean energy through its integrated renewable energy solutions orsted is creating american jobs investing in american communities and driving american innovation all while preserving our country's natural habitats A clean energy future truly connects us all, and Orsted is helping lead the charge. To learn more, visit us.orsted.com.